Thank you, choir and worship team. Yeah. Hope you have your Bible with you. I'd invite you to open it with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Luke 24, 13 to 35. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you, the shorter dark brown hardback books there. You'll find this on page 749 or 787 of the pew Bible, depending on which printing of that that you have. But it's Luke 24, 13 to 35. I've titled this sermon, An Eye-Opening Moment with Jesus. And we know what it means to have an an eye-opening experience. We know that phrase. The idea is that suddenly, maybe unexpectedly, uh, you understand something that was previously unknown. So, for example, somebody may travel to a part of the world where they're exposed to uh, just a degree of poverty and hardship and suffering and that kind of thing they've never comprehended before, and they come back and say, wow, that was uh, an eye-opening experience. And I'm hearing a whole lot of something in my head from this microphone. If it's just me, that's not a problem. If it's you too, nod your head, and we'll say, do something about that thing in our head. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, so, so you, you know the idea, just to sort of suddenly, unexpectedly, you understand something you didn't before, eye-opening experience. On the Sunday, when Jesus rose from the tomb, he met two travelers along the road, and uh, it was for them a life-changing, eye-opening experience, and it provides a, a picture of sorts for us of an eye-opening moment that all believers have when they come to saving faith in Christ. And we read about it in Luke 24, 13 through 35. Let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 13, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And that's all. That's on. Continuing in verse 16. Wow. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body... They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you for the privilege of coming together as your people, of bringing praise and worship to you with sincere hearts, Lord, knowing that you receive that, and as we considered early, even inhabit the praises of your people. And we thank you that when you summon us together, Lord, we know that you have something to say to us, and so we're listening and we open the scriptures with the great expectation that when your word is preached, your voice is heard. And so we ask, as we always do, that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. And Lord, would you move me out of the way, use my voice as just the instrument by which you want to communicate to your people. And you know the needs we have to hear from you. Would you minister the word of truth and the word of life to us this morning according to that need? In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, overnight on Thursday, Jesus was condemned by Jewish leaders in a sham of a trial. Friday morning, he was delivered over to the Roman governor, Pilate, uh, with the recommendation that he be put to death. And Pilate was hesitant to do so. At first, he didn't find anything in Jesus worthy of death. But eventually, he gave in to the pressure of the mob, essentially. And Jesus, an innocent man, was exchanged for one criminal, Barabbas, in order to be crucified between two other criminals. And after spending hours on the cross, he died that afternoon, was taken down, wrapped in a linen shroud, and laid in a newly cut tomb. And on Sunday morning, some of the women uh, had gone to apply spices to his body, but when they arrived at the tomb, they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. And of course, an angel said to them, why are you looking 
for the living among the dead. He's not here. He's risen just as he said he would. And they went back and reported to the others what they had seen. And on that same day, a short time later, Jesus met these two travelers that we just read about on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it was an eye-opening experience for them in that, again, they suddenly, unexpectedly came to understand something they had previously not understood. And as we move through the passage, we see um, that first, their sight was veiled. And then second, that the scriptures were illuminated to them. And then third, that their eyes were opened. So I want to take it under those headings as we walk through. And first, notice that their sight was veiled. The principle here is, is this, that it's possible to be near Jesus, but not really know him. Meaning, not, not really to fully trust in him, not to know who he is, for who he's revealed himself to be. It's possible to be near Jesus, but not really know him. That was true for these travelers in a literal way. Look in verses 15 and 16 here. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they literally, in a physical way, walked with Jesus along this road, but did not recognize who he was. Their eyes were kept from seeing him, it says, literally. But it's also true in a more figurative or metaphorical sense, because notice that these were not just two random travelers. They were followers of Jesus. And I don't know if you picked up on this as we were reading, but verse 13 says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. They were among those present with the disciples when the women came back and gave their report of the empty tomb. If you, if you sort of scan your eyes up to Verse 9, you see where they came back and it says, Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. All the rest of the believers. These two travelers to Emmaus were part of all the rest. These are people, in other words, who have followed Jesus. They have spent considerable time with him and they really don't understand who he is as the Messiah. Because look in verse 21, what they said about him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now what does that imply? To say he, they had hoped that he would redeem Israel implies that he didn't. He, he wasn't the guy apparently. He's dead now. They said in just a previous verse, they crucified him. And so what they hoped was going to come to pass, and Jesus didn't. They expected him to be a king of Israel, establish a political reign, and so forth, and now he's dead. So we can maybe imagine why they're just sort of walking along the road having this conversation, trying to figure out what just happened, the way all of these events unfolded. And, and in this sort of figurative sense, it's still quite possible to be near Jesus but not really know him. We can be near him in the sense of, you know, being part of a Christian family around the things of God, exposed to the things of God all growing up. We can be part of the church, 
institutionally and so forth. We can be part of institutions that bear the name of Christ, among people who bear the name of Christ, serving others in the name of Christ, and not know Christ. And it's not only possible, this is actually quite common, has been all throughout the centuries of the church. We see a prime example of this actually in the life of John Wesley, who was one of the founders of Methodism. And you may be familiar with that name at least, maybe his story or whatever. But Wesley was an Anglican minister whose father was an Anglican minister, whose mother's father was an Anglican minister, grew up almost literally in the church, lived in, you know, what the parsonage or whatever they called it in the Anglican church, uh, raised by a very devout mother who in many ways was a model of piety and devotion. He was ordained in 1728 as a minister in the Anglican church, helped form a holy club at Oxford. This is part of, part of his story, actually part of the way they became known as Methodists. They were so committed to walking out their Christian faith with discipline and methodically that people assigned the name to them Methodist as sort of an insult or a slight. This holy club included his brother Charles Wesley, who became one of the most prolific hymn writers in the history of the English-speaking world. It included George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the First Great Awakening. That's a that's a pretty strong accountability group there, you know? Small group. But this is part of his Christian walk. He ministered in the Church of England, even traveled from England to the colony of Georgia to minister there. But by his own testimony, it was 10 years after his ordination to ministry that he actually came to a saving knowledge of Christ. He was near to Jesus. <laughs> he was near to Jesus, but he didn't really know him. In a saving way. Well, again, like Wesley, uh, as the Emmaus travelers began their journey, their sight was veiled. But then, number two, as we see, the scriptures were illuminated to them. Specifically, they learned that the resurrection makes sense of the whole rest of the Bible. Look at verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, that is Jesus, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in all the scriptures, there's testimony of Christ. It should have been clear to them, Jesus is saying either by simply what was written in the Scriptures or what Jesus had taught them about what was in the Scriptures concerning him. But he calls them foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. And the implication being that a right understanding of the Old Testament would reveal that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and also to enter into his glory. So what they're just undone by and shaken by on this day, they're wondering what happened and how do we make sense of this, uh, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and also to enter into his glory. And we can't be sure which scriptures Jesus expounded there and explained for him, but it's clearly not just sprinkled with a few Bible verses out of the Old Testament. It was comprehensive. Because it says, he began with Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It says, all the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, I think that's 16 of them. I didn't go back and count them, but I believe that's right. 
and made at least some reference to all the other scriptures. In revealing, they testify of him. We get glimpses of how that influenced Peter's preaching in the book of Acts and just his first couple of sermons. He even makes reference to uh, Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy, Samuel, the Psalms, and the prophet Joel. So from every section of the Bible, in just Peter's first couple of short sermons, he's making a real sweeping reference to the Old Testament. But as much as anything, we, we might be helped by just jumping down in this passage here below and seeing uh, what Jesus told Peter and the rest of the disciples when he appeared to them uh, later. Look down at verses 44 through 47 with me. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in him. And so what, what he's unveiled for them is that at his resurrection, he secured forgiveness of sins. He didn't just pay off our debt. He actually seized control of the bank. Okay, he came up out of the grave with an armload of loan documents paid in full. Has the deed ready to give back over to the one held captive to it. All the liens on your family and your property and your future and all that kind of stuff. He has the loan documents for it. And see... Uh, this is a sort of revelation. Uh, he, he didn't use this analogy, I'm quite sure. But this is the sort of revelation that they get about the power of the resurrection. What has happened in the resurrection? Because, you know, even they in, in their day, they understand the Old Testament. It begins with a fall of man and covenants that unfold in God's relationship with mankind over the course of Old Testament history, how he's going to relate with them and operate in a gracious way toward them through covenants. They know about the sacrifices that have to be offered, mostly annually in the temple. And so they come back every year doing this sort of simulated debt cancellation pointing to one day it'll actually happen but not this day come back next year with a bull or a goat or a lamb or a turtle dove or whatever the thing is you've got to sacrifice they, they understand this about the old testament and then at the time of the resurrection when he reveals to them how all of this ties together and what's been accomplished that our sin debt has been paid, it is absolutely a game changer. And that's the thing we must not miss. It is a complete game changer for the disciples. They rejoice not only 
uh, that he had been resurrected, but that his resurrection made sense of everything else in the Bible. So that now, what's recorded for us in the New Testament as it sort of articulates that fulfillment, uh, as some have said in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts, Jesus is proclaimed. In the epistles, Jesus is uh, explained. And in the Revelation, Jesus is expected. It's It's a whole book about Jesus, and he shows them this and how that is explained by the resurrection. And, and now they are so convinced of the truth of God's word and understand the certainty of his promises and how they'll be fulfilled that these followers who were hunkered down behind locked doors wondering, what do we do next? <laughs> I mean, the Bible doesn't say that's what they're wondering, but they're like, I mean, the the. the the, the wheels kind of came off of the wagon here, as far as they could tell, when Jesus went to the cross. And they're trying to figure out, what do we do next? One of them, Peter's even denied knowing Jesus three times. You remember that story? Those followers go from cowardly to courageous in a snap. They, they are willing even to go preach in the temple to the same people who sent Jesus to the cross. And what made the difference? It was the resurrection. And their understanding of what had been accomplished in the resurrection. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection, frankly, that the historical reality of the resurrection is the fact that these men went from cowardly to courageous like that. I didn't... Uh, I actually had captured this uh, quote and then deleted it out of my notes at one point, so I won't be able to quote it. But Chuck Colson um, says this wonderfully. Uh, Chuck Colson, if you don't know who he was, became a a prominent Christian leader within evangelicalism uh, over the last, you know, 35, 40 years or something like that, died a few years ago. But before that, he was, uh, he, he worked in the Nixon administration. He was kind of a bulldog of a character or whatever. He went to prison because of his involvement in the Watergate scandal. He became a believer actually in prison. But he said the greatest proof of the resurrection was the fact that these 12 men testified of it for 40 years without wavering. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They all died badly because of it. But they never changed their story. He said Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men on the planet. They couldn't keep alive for three weeks. (laughs) You're telling me that these 12 men kept a lie for 40 years? Impossible. That's how powerful the impact of this was to them. The scriptures were illuminated. They understood what they were really proclaiming. They understood the significance of Jesus and what he had accomplished, their eyes were opened. And then finally, uh, in verse 30 through 32, we see exactly that. Their eyes were opened by the illumination of the scripture. Look there with me. 
When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And notice again, what he, when he appears to the other disciples, he said something similar. If you didn't catch that down in verse 45, he opened to them their minds to understand the scriptures. What they couldn't see before, now they could see. And, and, and the two travelers along the Emmaus Road recalled their hearts burned within them while Jesus was with them. And now their eyes were opened. The Holy Spirit had done a work in them to reveal the truth that was right there on the pages of Scripture the whole time, what Jesus had been talking about the whole time. And once again, uh, the testimony of John Wesley's conversion has a real similar element to it. Um, he, he says that at a meeting among the Moravian brethren, brethren uh, the Moravian fellowship or whatever, someone read from Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans, and Wesley would later say this, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, it's a wonderful testimony of a genuine work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person to bring them to the truth. But as I said, the fascinating part of the story is for John Wesley, that was 10 years after his ordination as a minister. That happened, that his heart was strangely warmed. And whether it is that kind of experience, a heart strangely warmed, a heart burning within him, or just somebody saying, God inexplicably moved them by the word of God. He did something in me. I can't really explain it, but they feel drawn to Jesus. That is the work of the Holy Spirit drawing a person to faith. And it can happen even after someone has been near to Jesus for a long time. Part of the church, part of a Christian family around the things of God have heard about them all their life, even think they understand them until the moment actually comes that their heart is strangely warmed, the light bulb comes on, they see Jesus for who he really is and respond to faith in him. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus secured for us, that in him we can have forgiveness of sins, we can have the debt canceled, the, doc, the loan documents mailed back. So when the accuser comes and wants to tell you of your debt that you still owe him, you can say, um, sir, I think you have an old photocopy of an old loan document. I can transfer you to Jesus. He can give you a copy of the canceled one if you'd like to talk with him about it. Now, you probably really ought not to be that polite to the devil, but you get the point. Is that the, the, the enemy doesn't cease pretending like 
He owns you. He, he doesn't ever, you know, if you're living in, in, in his program, thinking that the alternative plan is you do enough good works and you're going to pay down your loan balance, he's glad to send you a bill just showing you the minimum payment and he'll never show you the balance of what you owe because it would be clear to you, oh, I'll never pay off that balance. He's glad for you to just go try feeding the hungry, clothing the homeless, I mean, you know, doing some good works in order to pay back that debt, which are wonderful things to do, by the way, and certainly ought to be part and parcel with the Christian faith. But they will not pay off that debt. If we saw the balance, we would know. Well, we don't even need to. Because Jesus has secured the cancellation of that debt. And if you haven't done so already, if you trust in him, place faith in him, see just by the gift of a revelation of the Holy Spirit who he is and what he has done, it'll be a game changer for you too, just like it was for the apostles. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us, what you accomplished on the cross and that day when you emptied the tomb. And Father, I pray that as your word has just been read, and Lord, in my attempt even to expound that or proclaim it, Lord, I pray that in some mysterious way which I'll never understand that somehow from my words people will hear your voice Lord would you even right now strangely warm the hearts of people who have been near to you but maybe have not really known you in a saving way would you cause the truth to burn in their hearts Move them toward you. Show yourself for what you really are in all the glory of your grace that their lives may be changed forever. Lord, would you just lead them to a simple place of saying, Lord, I'm sorry and I believe you. And begin them on a journey from there um, into the wonders of a walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And it's fitting on a, on a day like today, uh, with a message like the one we read on the road to Emmaus, that then we would come together to the Lord's table as we commune with Him, as we actually participate with Him in the death that He died, where His body was pierced and his blood was shed so that our debt could be canceled. And that's what we do when we come to the table together. I said I would offer some instructions um, about this, and that is simply, number one, that our table, the Lord's table in our church, is open to all those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ. If you have professed faith in him, in a, a credible way, which you know, uh, whether that's true or not, 
uh, with so many visiting today, we certainly uh, don't know that in every case. But for those who are truly believers, as I say, if you are welcome in heaven, you're welcome at the Lord's table at Myrtle Grove EPC. Um, and we'll ask that as we uh, distribute the elements that you would just hold those and we'll partake of them together um, at the end. And so uh, with that, we'll look over in, you don't have to turn, but in um, 1 Corinthians 11, this is actually going to be a little harder than usual to do with one hand. Uh, and so maybe I won't even... Actually, I'll just ask, we'll improv. Will you come up here and just hold this microphone in front of my... Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup, saying, this blood, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll ask that the elders to begin coming forward as I pray. Let's bow together. Well, Lord, we do thank you again for the, just the privilege of being included in your family, that we have been made children of God, joint heirs with Jesus by the sacrifice that he made for us. And it is wonderful, and it is marvelous. In some ways, it is mysterious and inexplicable because it is so good, the good news of that sacrifice. And so, uh, Lord, as we partake of this bread and the cup, we recognize it is ordinary bread and ordinary juice, and yet we just consecrate it for the purposes set before us today, we pray that you would bless them and cause in our partaking of them that somehow in a spiritual way we would be joined together with Jesus who is alive today. He is seated on a throne this morning. He is reigning right now and we belong to him. So would you join us together through this holy sacrament, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.